Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, alright? And joining me as always via the miracle of satellite technology, meet the only guy who changes his identity more often than his underwear. It's Ed Davis. How the devil are you, sir? I'm good, thank you. And thank you for describing me in such illustrious terms. Mm. Uh, I'm going to guess... Is that from the Dana Carvey vehicle, The Master of Disguise? No, but you're on the right lines, apart from, like, that's a dreadful version of this film. <laughs> um, that's Fletch. Okay, yeah. Um, yeah, that is a much better version of that concept, because yeah. Master of Disguise uh, is not very good, and it's also a film that I'm very surprised people still remember, purely because it gets referenced on comedy podcasts a lot, mm. as an example of a not very good movie. I remember when that came out, and that was that was kind of in like the uh, early days of IMDb. Master of Disguise was always down on that kind of like top ten worst film, films kind mm. of ever. I don't know anyone who's seen it. I certainly haven't seen it, and all I know about the film is Dana Carvey plays a lot of characters. Um, what's what's the problem with it? Is it just badly done, poor poor idea, badly executed, or is it is there something like deeply offensive about it? I think it's badly executed, but I feel like its reputation for being a very bad film is more shaped by the fact that that was the first thing Dana Carvey had done for a really long time. Because mm-hmm. obviously he had two huge hits in the early 90s with the Wayne's World movies and he was a huge star from SNL. And then I kind of got the feeling he didn't do a huge amount. And then after that, he didn't do a huge amount after that either for I think for for health reasons maybe and he's only just recently started doing things again mm. and yeah so so I think it got a lot of hate just because he was someone who people really loved who did a thing that wasn't terribly good and then disappeared for a really long time uh, and also like in comparison to Mike Myers who was just on the you know he had had the first two Austin Powers films and the first Shrek so to see that that his career seemed to be going on a real downward slope at the same time that uh, Mike Myers was ascending uh, in a way that no one thought was going to end uh, until it abruptly did. Mm, yeah, with the Love Guru, uh, I seem to remember him. That was the thing that derailed that, wasn't it? And the Cat in the Hat. Oh, but yeah, of course, yeah. I think the Cat in the Hat, people kind of gave him a pass on because he still, he still had a couple of other things that people more or less liked. But yeah, the Love Guru was the one that said, nope. Please stop doing live action things. <laughs> mm. um, Dana Carvey could probably do with like a collaboration, three way collaboration with both Guy Garvey and PJ Harvey. <laughs> just because, I mean, I think that'd just be really fun. I mean, I don't know what they could do, start a law firm or something. Carvey, <laughs> Garvey, and Harvey. Um, anyway, well, that's. Uh, this uh, is very, very specific, but on Devonshire Green in Sheffield, there's oh, a doctor. Dr. PJ Harvey. <laughs> uh, yeah, I always used to love walking past that. Um, <laughs> And just just like imagining, hoping that that's what she did in between, like her doing her kind of dark, angsty, kind of dirty rock folk, mm. that she was also like a practice, a general practitioner. Mm. But the thing is, like they clearly know because on the list of doctors outside the uh, the the door, it says like Doctor like Ian whatever, Jeff whatever, and then just they've just put PJ Harvey. Like mm. <laughs> they must know that they're going to get that unless it is actually PJ Harvey. Um, but anyway, that's a weird start to an episode. Dane, Dana <laughs> Carvey and then, you know, super niche Sheffield reference. Um, what's been going on in the news this week? It's been a quiet one, but we've managed to kind of have a rummage around in the uh, in the news bag and pull out a few treats. The biggest thing, the biggest news, I guess, has been the Star Trek, new TV show, Star Trek, um, which everyone was super excited about, not me, because... You know, I'm not a massive loser, but um, it uh, it was kind of exciting exciting because Brian Fuller was on board as the showrunner. He was the guy behind Hannibal, um, which people seem to like. And now he's off. He's he's done one. Uh, not really sure why. What's the what's the story there, Ed? It seems to be that um, Star Trek Discovery, which is the 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 name of the show, uh, was originally going to come out. I think in January of 2017 or February, early spring, and then they've said that they're going to delay it and he's got a lot of other projects that he's working on at the same time like he's, he's obviously got American Gods which is really picking up steam and is going to come out next year and he seems to always be trying to get Hannibal back on the air in some regards so he's always working on various different things and it just reached a point where it's kind of like you know Guillermo del Toro in The Hobbit where 
he he wants to do it and he's still involved in that he's uh, still a producer and he's going to help sketch out where the show's going to go, but he's not going to be helping with the day-to-day running anymore. So he's just had to say, I can't keep up with this, this schedule if you're going to keep delaying the show. So uh, he's going off to pursue other projects that are actually going to happen on time. Mm, okay. And is there someone else who's stepped up to replace him? or? Uh, I believe it's Alex Kurtzman, who is one of the writers of the J.J. Abrams series, the first two J.J. Abrams movies, mm-hmm. who uh, is not a particularly good writer. He also wrote the Transformers movies with his co-writer, Rebecca Walkie, or it might be Roberta Walkie. It's one of those two guys. Uh, but I think it's the showrunning duties currently being shared between like three of the different producers. But he's the like the biggest name because obviously right. he's someone who's been involved with Star Trek for a few years. Hmm. Okay. Um, so we're going to keep our ears to the ground to see how that pans out. Um, it does kind of take the air out a little bit for a lot of people, certainly for me, because obviously Brian Fuller is someone who I, I love a lot. And I think that he has the chance to kind of respect the history of Star Trek whilst taking it in a new direction. Whereas like just a bunch of other people who aren't Brian Fuller and also just the, the fact that CBS seem to have committed to doing a new Star Trek and then a p- treating it fairly shabbily uh, doesn't quite fill people with as much hope as uh, the project initially had. But, I mean, it could still be good, but it's not It's not a great start. Mm, yeah, yeah. In terms of kind of weird news this week or kind of news that's a little bit kind of head-scratchy, um, Disney have announced they're making a new version of Oliver Twist. I mean, they never do a new version of anything. Uh, it's just kind of dust off the old classics and give them a whirl. Um, they're doing Oliver Twist, a musical version, uh, of course. Um, but with Hamilton director Thomas Kale at the helm um, and Ice Cube as Fagin. Um, this could be a terrible thing, but also that probably could be fun. I don't know. Am I sitting on the fence enough? Um, I like to think of it as a live action version of Oliver and Company. Yeah, that's yeah. the best way to think of all adaptations of uh, the original <laughs> source material Oliver and Company. At least, uh, well, that's the thing. Like, this might seem like a bad idea, but at least Billy Joel's not in it. Yeah, yeah. So we can all be grateful for some small mercies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's super weird, and that's kind of the most interesting thing about it is that those are not the the kind of the pieces of the puzzle you would put together, but. Mm. Um, I do, I mean, assumingly, it's not just a new version of Oliver the Musical, or is mm. it? Well, yeah, I mean, I, they can't, no, no, I wouldn't have thought so. It's a musical version of Oliver Twist with some new songs in it, I guess. That I mean, maybe, maybe they'll be all, all good ice, ice Cube songs, so like they could spend, all the little kind of urchins could spend a day going out kind of robbing, and then they could get back and show him what they've got, and he could just say, yeah, today was a good day. And then that song would start. <laughs> or, uh, I mean, Cop Killer certainly kind of would fit in for something that Bill Sykes could sing. Hmm. Isn't that, wasn't that Ice-T, though? That's right, it was, wasn't it? Shit. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, Ice Cube and Ice-T have shared the screen, uh, most notably in the by no means terrible but super enjoyable Walter Hill film Trespass, which is an mm. scene. But that's, that's kind of like, it's, got, it's also got, oh, who's in it? It's Bill Pullman and someone else. Like another actor of Bill Pullman. No, not Bill Pullman, Bill Paxton. I'm getting my Paxton <laughs> Pullman. Uh, God, I'm getting confused between those two. I'm turning into a, a living uh, Doug Benson sketch. Um, but yeah, it's. Uh, have you seen that film? It's really bad, but it's actually also quite of enjoyable. I haven't, no. That's one of the. I've seen a lot of Walter Hill films, but there's like a bunch of like 90s and early 2000s ones I haven't got round to yet. Mm. Um, it's, it's like a remake of The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, but mm-hmm. with, like, Bill Paxton, Ice-T and Ice Cube. <laughs> I mean, that does sound pretty great. Mm. And, like, uh, Walt Hill doesn't have a flawless track record, but he is the sort of person who always delivers something at least mildly enjoyable. Uh, although I didn't see, like I say, I haven't seen, like, Bullet to the Head, which a lot of people say wasn't particularly good. But, no. like, yeah, if... Um, with that cast, it certainly sounds like fun. But back to Oliver Twist. Mm. Like the idea of it being an original new musical certainly sounds more interesting than if they were to do just a remake of Oliver. Because, I mean, that version from the 60s is 
pretty definitive version of that musical and also the songs that musical are very grating (laughs) so it's not the sort of thing that you could really update so a new musical version of it at least sounds kind of fascinating uh even if it also sounds like the sort of thing that was created from just pulling words out of a hat Mm. Uh, and they had one for one for property we can adapt one for genre and one for act lead actor Mm. yeah yeah, who else was in that bag with Ice Cube? But I mean, we talked about we did a whole episode on Hamilton um, a few weeks ago, and I made a really flippant comment towards the end of that episode that do you think I asked you do you think that um, now Hamilton, in the wake of his success, that people will be trying to put a hip hop spin on kind of everything? <laughs> and yeah, maybe they were listening because <laughs> they were like, "Hey, uh, do I reckon there's some life in all of a twist? How do we make this relevant?" Hmm, I know. Um, and it just, I, you know, there's just an idea that some executives are pitching this in the way that, you know, in, in Arrested Development, when Tobias like, buys the Queen Mary and he goes out on the street to try and educate young young youths via the medium of rap music. Um, <laughs> yeah. It feels a bit like that. Yeah, it does have that vibe. I mean, Hamilton's like a unique work of genius in many ways and it comes from a specific mind it seems like that sort of thing that'd be very hard to replicate and especially if you do go into it of like how can we hamiltonize the works of charles dickens uh, mm. it seems like it's made for to, to kind of fail um at the same time you know i think that something like oliver twist you could kind of see that working with rap but also there's a very serious chance of it just ending being ending up being incredibly corny. Mm, yeah. Imagine if it's not even a rap version. Maybe we're being like terribly presumptive <laughs> and the ice cube has just had this burning desire to like, you know, show off his musical theater chops. Maybe, or maybe they were just trying to think, how can we make this less anti-Semitic? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Cause that was um, always a big problem with, uh, with Fagin, wasn't it? Yeah, so they they've gone as far from that as they could possibly go. Mm. Although they run the risk of it being racist in a different way, but yeah, that character is one who I think is due to be kind of reassessed and replayed in a way that's at least interesting. Because even like that Polanski version from ten years ago or something, where is made after many years of people pointing out that this character is anti-Semitic and it's being directed by a Jewish director. Uh, the Ben Kingsley rendition still came across as really anti-Semitic. So uh, it seems like it's there's something where they could actually try and uh, do something that uh, improves on that, at least. Mm, yeah. I think the only real way to improve on it is to cast Robert De Niro mm-hmm. as Fagin, just so I can use the, the pun Fagin bull. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, like apropos of nothing. I'll just put it in there. Also, he's he could add it to his performance as Magwitch from the uh, Alfonso Cuaron version of Great Expectations. Oh yeah, of course. And so yeah. he can, so he can have at least he can kind of build his own uh, cinematic universe, the RDCU of mm-hmm. his uh, performances of modern day interpretations of classic Dickens novels. I mean, I'd I'd go I'd go into that. Why not? Anyway, that took fucking forever to talk about that tiny bit of news, <laughs> but. Um, <laughs> We do have a couple more tidbits. Uh, one is uh, everyone's favourite director, Josh Trank, uh, is back after being unceremoniously fired from uh, Fantastic Four and that Star Wars film. But yeah, he's yeah. got a new film coming out. He is going to direct Tom Hardy in a kind of a biopic about Al Capone. And I mean, there's no two reasons. One, Josh Trank is... I mean, appears to be a deeply unlikable person who no one wants to work with. <laughs> and it's kind of exciting that he's back in the director's seat, I guess. Well, it's exciting, interesting. Um, and Tom Hardy is playing Al Capone, which completes his kind of triumvirate of gangster roles with Bronson, uh, the Cray twins, and um, Al, you know, Al Capone. It's, he's got three big hitters there. And he seems to have gone through them in levels of notoriety. Mm. Like... Charles Bronson, who is only really known in Britain if he's known at all. The Craze, who again are slightly more high and slightly better known than Charles Bronson, but still very much confined to, you know, those septed aisles. And 
then suddenly he's made the leap. He's like, okay, you've handled these two. We'll give you Capone, who's mm. like the only real gangster that most people can name. So I think it's uh, so it's, uh, it's nice to see that he's paid his dues and he's kind of gone like in stages. Um, but yeah, the, the thing that's interesting about it, one that it's, I think he's playing him like he's when he was suffering from Alzheimer's or something, because he was kind of pretty much like out of it by the end of his life. You know, he didn't really know who he was when he was uh, in the kind of the sad final years. Uh, and so that's interesting. You know, that kind of makes you kind of worry that it's going to be complete Oscar bait nonsense. Mm. Uh, if they're going like you're not going to just get you to play this iconic person you're going to have to you're going to get to play him when he's really ill as well but yeah you know it's just um fascinating how as an example of how kind of mediocre male directors get lots of second chances Mm. considering that if i think if most people uh no not if most people if a female director had done what he did on Fantastic Four, which was be almost impossible to work with and then trash the film as soon as it came out. Uh, probably wouldn't get hired back like within two years to make a high profile movie. Mm. Uh, and it's very, and, and or if like a, a, an actor, a director, you know, who was a person of color did that also probably wouldn't happen. So uh it's interesting to see that he's been given another chance so soon after he seemed to have been labelled persona non grata and, like you say, portrayed as being kind of a deeply awful person. Mm, yeah, yeah. It's it's quite something to get removed from one film and then fired from a second film before you've even made it. Mm-hmm. But um, he did... That's achievement unlocked for, for Josh yeah. Trank. He's done really well there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a shame because, I mean, you know, his name lends itself to endless puns like Tranks for Nothing, uh, Tranks but No Tranks. Um, yeah, and yeah, I just want to see him get fired from this just so I can wheel those out again. Um, <laughs> the last bit of news isn't even really a bit of film news, but we thought it was worth mentioning. Uh, Vine is closing. Uh, I mean, I mean that's interesting in a sense that it's a kind of a video platform that is now gone. So where else are we going to get videos of like uh, six second videos of people doing stupid shit? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, like I guess everyone could just kind of make all of their Twitter videos that, but then they wouldn't loop and it wouldn't be as good. Um, I'm I was a little more kind of sad about Vine closing down or being shut down than I expected because I'm not really a Vine person uh, in the sense that I wouldn't be able to tell you who Vine stars are. I wouldn't be able to kind of like point to instantly like what my favorite Vines were, but I did watch a lot of them because people would retweet them into my feed or post them on Facebook more often, you know, on Twitter and things. Uh, And it was even that tiny glimpse I got said that it was a format and a kind of community that seems to foster a lot of people who are very creative uh, particularly people of colour who used it as an opportunity to kind of just do weird, zany, crazy sketch comedy in a lot of ways. And it was a seemed to be a very fertile ground for people to try and do just weird, absurdist comedy and to really kind of push against this very strict boundary of you only have six seconds to do setup punchline you know and that you have to try and do it in such a way that is funny to watch multiple times because that's just the way that you know constant goes around in a loop Uh, and it just seemed to be something that fostered a lot of creativity and it's sad to see that go in like a really unceremonious way Uh, and i think it's easy to kind of make fun of people being described as vine stars because it's such seems so niche but like some of those people they did things that were watched hundreds of millions of times uh, and it's just really weird that those things would just kind of disappear and like some of them, I don't know, might make some kind of bridge into a more established media or like YouTube, uh, <laughs> which I guess would be the kind of the more established form at this point. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's just kind of shame to think that there was this centralized community that will just kind of dissipate and go out into the wild. Mm. Yeah. Um, but the one thing I noticed about it on Twitter when I saw it announced was no one seemed to think that making a joke about it withering on the vine was original <laughs> um, <laughs> because my tweet was literally full of, of, of people making the same gag and yeah. I mean I can't think of any better puns but yeah it's fine I've got vine diesel but that doesn't mean anything <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, enough of this nonsense, Ed. What are we talking about this week? Well, it's Halloween and everything is very spooky and usually we don't do a kind of a Halloween themed episode because we're not very organized mm-hmm. <laughs> and we don't usually think of something in time but uh, you and I thought about you know because this episode is going up on Halloween itself that we should try and do something themed to it and something that leapt out to mind was a discussion of the Universal Monsters which is the stable of creatures that are associated with films made in the the 30s and 40s which established universal as kind of the home of horror for for a couple of decades really but also have proved to be incredibly influential on the horror genre in general in that a lot of the films that were made during that period have either been remade like directly by universal in recent years or just inspired lots of people to do their own thing or in some cases are so iconic that every film that tries to do the same thing that they do is in some way has to kind of repudiate or respond to the thing that they are riffing on. Mm. And we're going to talk about it in kind of a historical context in the sense that they kind of set the template for some of those things and uh, as we'll go on to discuss how uh, portrayals of those characters and those tropes uh, in within the genre have changed and developed over time, but how some really kind of struggle to escape those uh, trappings that were from the original. Um, so where do, where do we begin? And uh, we talk about the Universal monsters. Who were we really talking about? Uh, well, we're talking about Dracula, uh, who first appeared on screen officially. I mean, you had Nosferatu in 1922, but obviously that was unofficial, and I believe there were a lot of lawsuits over that. But, you know, the official Dracula, uh, the Universal version, came out in 1931 and starred Bela Lugosi as the Count. You are talking about The Mummy, which starred Boris Karloff and came out in 1933. The Invisible Man, starring Claude Rains, came out in 1933. Uh, the Wolfman, which came out in 1941 and starred uh, Lon Chaney Jr. Uh, and Frankenstein, which came out in 1932, uh, sorry, 1931, uh, and again starred Boris Karloff. And uh, those are kind of the, the the films that started of it all. And then over time, they all got sequelized. They all had crossovers at a certain point when Universal started to get the idea that the idea of just having these monsters in their own stories was getting a bit stale. So you would have Frankenstein meet the Wolfman. You would have Dracula fighting Frankenstein. You would have Abbott and Costello meeting all of them at various points. Uh, and it became, you know, the original cinematic universe, as everyone says. Uh, and it be- it was it was this uh, period of great creativity for the studio. They did all these films that were, some of which are, are fantastic and amazing and most of which are just really fun and really enjoyable horror movies. But then, like you say, they set, set the template for what a werewolf movie was meant to be, what a vampire story was meant to be. Um, and also, you know, in, in Frankenstein, you have a story type that has been replicated over and over again and not just in direct adaptations of, like, Mary Shelley's story. Mm. What kind of kick-started that ed what i mean was one one of those films made just on a on a kind of a whim i guess and then it was successful so we got the rest to follow or was it a more concerted plan well dracula was the the first of that lot to come out dracula and i think frankenstein came out in the same year 1931 i think i misspoke earlier yeah they both came out in 1931 but prior to that universal had made a bunch of horror movies for a while they did the like the original phantom of the opera with lon cheney senior and they they had built something of a reputation as purveyors of horror under the lemley family carl lemley and carl lemley jr and uh, it was seen as a little disreputable but it was also very profitable so they kind of kept moving that and doing dracula and frankenstein seemed like the logical next step because they were these hugely influential and well-known books and the idea of being the first to really to to do that in the sound era was very kind of exciting it was something that they wanted to push for and those were hugely successful and then that kind of petered out around 1936 after the lemleys were forced out of universal uh over the movie showboat which they took out a big loan to make uh, and then they couldn't pay the loan back so the bank took over their share of the company uh and then like horror pretty much died at the studio for a few years and then 
a theatre did uh, a double bill of Dracula and Frankenstein in 1938, which was hugely successful, which convinced Universal to re-release those films and then make more films. And that was kind of the the biggest, most kind of prolific period was the late 30s, the 1940s, when they did all of the sequels and they did all of the... Um, did all the crossovers and stuff. So initially it was just like, we make horror films, we're going to make horror films based on very acclaimed stories. Like obviously then you also have The Invisible Man. So you have the this kind of crossover between pulpy horror and literary fiction that seemed to be kind of uh, cut, splitting the difference between the kind of visceral thrills and kind of quality quality movie making. Mm. I find it kind of mind-boggling to think that when I asked the question that, about you know what kickstarted this this kind of burst of films, my instant thought was, oh, a whole bunch of books must have just entered the public domain. Mm. But then you think about it, and those books were only thirty years old <laughs> when they were making those movies. Like Dracula was published in eighteen ninety-seven. Yeah, that's like something from the eighties being done now as a film. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't really register in my head as a thing. Yeah, because to us, they seem like stories that have just been around for all time. Mm. Like, yeah. it's weird to think that someone at some point had to sit down and write Frankenstein, <laughs> uh, that it wasn't just something that existed in the ether for all time. But mm. yeah, it, it had to it had to be written by Mary Shelley. And uh, didn't, she, and... didn't she write Frankenstein? I found this out like a couple of years ago. Like, she wrote Frankenstein when she was like 17 or something? She did. She wrote it when she was 17 and also the original idea came from uh, a contest between her, uh, uh, Percy Shelley and Lord Byron being Mm. trapped in a castle or something like late at night due to bad weather and just trying to come up with scary stories. So the story goes. I don't know if this is apocryphal, but I think it's it's backed up by historical sources Uh, and Frankenstein emerged from that. So you have an incredibly young and talented woman creating this iconic story of horror and hubris pretty much on a whim because she was drinking with mates Mm. which you know i've been a lot of nights out and none of them have ended with kind of a classic work of horror yeah Um, different kinds of horror yeah different kinds of horror yeah i think it's that's just such a great sentence that mary shelley byron trapped in a castle (laughs) it's just like well obviously something's gonna happen you know i mean that's gonna happen yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so yeah, we got this kind of raft of of, um, of the horror movies in the early thirties and forties, and like you say, they were very very quickly jumped upon um, and kind of sequelized, and uh, they kind of knew what they were doing in the golden age of Hollywood, didn't they? They were kind of churning them out, mm-hmm. um, and the quality is kind of reasonable, isn't it? And some of them, like Bride of Frankenstein, is you know often considered to be you know every bit as good and. Um, I'm not sure about the... Was there Dracula... Did Lugosi play Dracula more than once? Uh, yeah, I think he played it a few times because he was very much a, a utility player for for Universal. He would show up in stuff all the time. Obviously, he showed up as... He played Igor in Son of Frankenstein. He And kind of... That's obviously an iconic character in itself. He was in The Wolfman as the initial werewolf that bites Lon Chaney Jr. He was someone who just showed up in a lot of Universal horror movies. I'm pretty sure he played... He certainly played him in um, in the Abbott and Costello Meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. so Or Meet the Wolfman. So, yeah, he, play, he played Dracula a bunch of times over the years. Mm. Uh, of all of them, was Dracula, like, kind of the most successful? Uh, I think that... Dracula and Frankenstein were both kind of equally successful. That first kind of raft of them were all pretty sizable hits. Mm. Uh, And then Son of Frankenstein, which was the first one that they made after they decided, after that double bill was really successful and convinced Universal to make more of them, was kind of a huge runaway hit. Even though of the three, the kind of initial trilogy of, of... Frankenstein movies uh, in that it's the the, the three that uh, Karloff plays the monster in. It's the least good of them. It's still good and it's a lot of fun. And also it's great if you've seen Young Frankenstein because there's a lot of 
a lot of bits from that end up in Young Frankenstein, including the one-armed policeman who has a wooden arm who plays darts at one point, which for years I assumed was something that just sprung whole cloth out of Mel Brooks's head, but is actually done in all seriousness in Son of Frankenstein. Uh, that one was like a monster hit, no pun intended. And mm. the rest of them all kind of followed and they, they churned them out at kind of a fair old rate and they were all pretty successful, really. Mm. And like we say, they kind of de- define the characters and they define the iconic images. And even though they might run contrary to what was described in the novels they're based on, uh, for example, uh, I mentioned this to you as a joke in our kind of pre, pre-show pre notes, but, you know, Dracula in the book is a kind of like elegant yet withered old man with a moustache, mm. with yeah. a kind of like long wispy grey hair. And he's very rarely... Um, kind of depicted as that I had a copy of the book when I was younger and it was uh, a weird book I never really kind of saw this done in any other way it was Dracula and then on one side and if you turned the book over it was Jekyll and Hyde on the other side oh yeah yeah. met in the middle somewhere obviously the books ended and just merged stories (laughs) Um, but um, yeah like the the picture of Dracula on the front was very very literal from the pages but it looked like John Carpenter which is (laughs) how I now think of Dracula but we think of Bela Lugosi the kind of like swarthy kind of Eastern European kind of a classy gentleman um, rather than uh, kind of like weird old hermit and then Frankenstein uh, likewise Frankenstein's monster um, when people think of Frankenstein's monster, they, you know, 99 times out of 100 will think of, you know, the kind of the flat-headed, heavy-browed um, kind of stitches that Karloff kind of pioneered with his makeup. Yeah, and I think that is a large part because that was such a... I, I think that may have been the first... Ad- I assume that was the first cinematic adaptation of Frankenstein and it was the one that made the biggest impact on people who would then go on to create subsequent culture in you know even somebody like the monsters you know mm. with the or or with the, the father being modeled on the Karloff character and just the fact that that is the one that people ha- that has been the most parodied over the years mm-hmm. and so that's the one that people instantly think okay yeah that's what Frankenstein's monster is as opposed to like if you talk about more faithful versions of those characters in the 90s you had the Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's uh, Frank uh, Dracula where Gary Oldman's character is much closer to what Dracula is in the book in that he's an old withered man with like the wispy hair but still no moustache no uh, except when he's doesn't he get a moustache when he uh, starts drinking blood and becomes younger yeah he gets a kind of like uh, thin pencil moustache kind of matinee idol moustache with a little soul yeah. patch underneath well, he kind of, kind of looks a bit like he should be the like in the strokes but wearing, <laughs> wearing a top hat and, and glasses yeah, so like if the strokes formed now, mm, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's what they would look like. Uh, or, or Kenneth Branagh's version of Frankenstein where the Robert De Niro performance that is very clearly intended to look be like the Frankenstein monster in the novel in that he talks, uh, you know, in co- cogent sentences, he's kind of a sentient being as opposed to a lot of the earlier depictions where he's kind of just a lumbering mass you know uh, those seem wrong to people they feel like they're radical reinventions as opposed to actually kind of returning to the source because these other versions came to define what those characters look like for huge swathes of the population at the time and then just through different adaptations through parody they become set in the public imagination of dracula has a kind of a heavy, a heavy kind of Slavic accent. The Frankenstein monster doesn't talk. You know, these are, or, or if he does, it's very kind of halting. Um, werewolves uh, only kind of turn into wolves at the full moon, which was something that was invented for the Wolfman and was never kind of part of the mythology prior to that. You know, mm. these are these are things that were established by these movies. Mm, yeah, and we're going to talk a little bit how those depictions develop through time but we probably can stop talking about the Invisible Man now because he's someone who hasn't really gone on. He didn't catch the imagination the way that the other monsters did. And the uh, Claude Rains depiction of the Invisible Man is probably the kind of the definitive one because 
there were no really, no really others. I mean, uh, John Carpenter did one with Chevy Chase, which was terrible mm-hmm. in the 80s, but you know, it wasn't really a, a kind of a, a rich vein, was it? Yeah, I mean, the only notable other version I can think of are things like, I mean, because like the idea of someone being able to become invisible became a subject of, of humour for kind of like bawdy comedies over the years. It's like, you know, if you would come if you become invisible, you know, just kind of hang out in girls' locker rooms or something, which I believe happens in Hollow Man. Or mm, the he certain, does the, genuinely do that. Yeah. So that's something that, that it just became a kind of a silly thing as opposed to a, a thing that was genuinely scary. Or in the, um, in like the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen comic books where they have him as a kind of a serial rapist where they mm. do the kind of, uh, they, they kind of reimagine him and make him uh, even darker and more horrifying than the original idea of him was. And those are the mm. only ones that really kind of stick in my mind as adaptations that really burst through is that you either take the idea of, oh, someone becomes invisible and you just make it, uh, play it for pure comedy or you, you're you Alan Moore and you're just a freaky weirdo. Mm, yeah, just to kind of... Um reinforce that in the Alan Moore version of The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's not only a serial rapist, but he's a serial rapist who frequents all-girls schools. Mm -hmm. So a serial rapist paedophile who is impregnating schoolgirls in a rash of kind of unexplained pregnancies across Victoria and London. It's a very dark take on the material, isn't it? Yeah, and his uh, the way he exits that comic book is equally dark. (laughs) I won't spoil it for people, but it's, yeah, it's very very brutal. (laughs) Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, he kind of didn't really develop. But how how did the uh, the kind of stars and the the iconic roles develop outside of like maybe the, the golden age of Hollywood? When we moved into the fifties, the the big change that I can think of is is that we start to see like werewolves and and that as a trope being explored as a metaphor for adolescence or puberty, mm. but in a very broad strokes. Um, in the 50s, there was the famous film, I Was a Teenage Werewolf. I think Michael Landon was the, the titular werewolf. Um, and it was a film that was, I mean, it's kind of a funny, schlocky B-movie title, which we all laugh at now. But if you watch the film, and I've seen the film a couple of times, actually, it's like a really alarmist film about like the dangers of teenagers. Because, I mean, that was a new thing in the 50s, and people mm. were kind of terrified of this suddenly a generation of teenagers who didn't have to fight in a war or kind of die in a dust bowl. Um, and all of a sudden it was kind of terrifying to people. So yeah, there was uh, kind of this demonizing kind of film made um, about them. And it's really kind of funny and weird, but that was the, that was the start of something else. Wasn't it? it took that kind of story about man losing himself to his uh, kind of a primal kind of bestial form and then kind of changing into something quite different, which we which we see continue on to this day in, in werewolf films. Yeah, I mean, that's something that you also see with, I mean, that's inherent to vampire stories as well. Like Dracula's always been about sex on some level. It's always about the repressed desires and things like that. But with, uh, you know, with the were- werewolf thing, because it's something that can't be controlled in most versions. In some versions, like Teen Wolf, Mm-hmm. Um, you know it's it's more benign even though uh it shouldn't be and everyone in that film should be a little more freaked out that there's a werewolf playing basketball mm-hmm. which is not especially that's its own addition to the canon of lyco- lycanthropy uh, mm-hmm. because it's something that's uncontrollable then there's something in there about you know human nature or whatever or you know a metaphor i think is it like uh like J.K. Rowling recently said that like the werewolf character in Harry Potter is like meant to be a metaphor for being gay or something, mm. uh, uh, which is not something I'm. Which is I definitely always kind of thought that it was a uh, there was a metaphor for kind of some hidden part of you that you don't want to see out let out in the world or you feel you can't be safe with. But I kind of felt like her actually saying it so it felt like it was a little too on the nose. But mm. she retcons her books quite a lot, doesn't she? She does, yeah, and you kind of feel like. Um, I mean, like I'm not too big of a kind of like a Bartes death of the author per- kind of person, but you do feel at a certain point you need to let the books out into the world and stop just kind of like saying, oh, such and such a character was gay the whole time or this meant that, you know, I think it's pretty obvious that being a werewolf wasn't necessarily just what it was about. 
Mm. So you don't need to kind of spell out for everyone. But like, yeah, the, the 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 nature of being a werewolf fits a metaphorical story really well. Um, I think you also see that in something like Ginger Snaps has a bit of that to it as well. Or the character of Oz in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, who was obviously a teenage boy who becomes a werewolf and kind of loses all control and hurts the people around him, including the people they love, which is such a great metaphor for just adolescence really just being a teenager mm, yeah yeah um how did um dracula fare in the kind of 50s and 60s i mean dracula and frankenstein i, I think of when it moves into the the 50s and 60s i always instantly think to hammer mm-hmm. and their representations of it and if people think of the frankenstein's monster and they think of boris karloff I very often think of Christopher Lee, whose yeah. monster in that was, you know, I don't know, it seemed kind of more vulnerable somehow, but like even more, way more horrifying as, a, you know, just appearance wise. Yeah, I think with the Hammer films, they're a lot, they're a lot scarier. Mm. I mean, they're still quite tame by modern standards, but they are just generally, there's something about them that is a little less hemmed in by the limitations of it being even though those movies were pre-code and they could get away with stuff that you wouldn't be able to get away with a few years later like a lot of the later universal horror films are a little tamer than the early ones in terms of just how much death and destruction there is they're still not that bloody they're not really that overt in kind of their themes are they kind of dealing with the sex and the violence of it whereas by the time you get to the 50s things are loosening a little bit more uh, are a bit looser and also just the entire hammer aesthetic is a lot more kind of ghoulish and garish and so that adds to the, the horror of it uh, and also i think that a lot of those directors were just a lot more versed in the cinematic techniques than todd browning was like todd browning created freaks which is like a great movie but he wasn't he i think he came from stage and he never really quite adapted to cinema all that well so he's a little kind of his his pacing and his compositions are a little stodgy and uninteresting in comparison so even though bella lugosi is kind of a great dracula he's kind of surrounded by a slightly stodgy film so that's Mm. why the hammer ones are a little better because just because the people are making them have a slightly better handle on how to tell that story cinematically Mm. and certainly with frankenstein that was my introduction to to that character i didn't see the, the the james whale versions until you know much 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 later but it's interesting to see how changing attitudes towards kind of sex and violence on screen does change kind of the characters and what they're about like you know like you say about dracula the book being all about sex and it is it's you know there's someone being punctured and, and, you know, fluid transfers happening left, right and centre in that book. But it wasn't until, you know, I saw like maybe he goes a Countess Dracula or something as a kind of a, a kind of red-blooded teenage boy and there's, you know, a female Dracula with the knockers out bathing, literally bathing in a bath of blood. Mm. And I'm like, okay, this is... I mean, it's a little on the nose. I mean, <laughs> it is a nose, practically. <laughs> it's so on the nose. And, yeah, it's kind of... After that, you've got to that what you're saying that couldn't be said back in when the books were written. Then we've got to go somewhere else with it. And where did it go? I mean, we had a kind of an exploitation cycle after that in the kind of the seventies when it got kind of really tawdry. But yeah, where did where did those characters go from there? Well, I think that kind of a big stepping stone in terms of really pushing the envelope in terms of sex and blood would be the uh, the the Andy Warhol produced movies. Blood for Dracula and Flesh for Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which I want—I can't remember who it directed it. It was the guy who directed just a bunch of movies for him, but they were super violent and very disgusting because they were also certainly Fresh Flesh for Frankenstein. I believe was in 3D, and so there's one bit where Doctor Frankenstein just kind of has or maybe it's the monster just has a load of viscera in his hand and he just kind of holds it out to the audience and it's super gross Mm -hmm. Uh, and those were definitely ones where you're working within this art house aesthetic you are taking material that has been sort of even at its its most um 
outre or whatever before has always still been a little restrained and then just saying we're going to go completely nuts with the violence and the sex in this one Mm. Uh, and i feel that was a big step in adapting those characters and showing that they could be updated for new sensibilities Mm. and we talk about werewolves dracula uh frankenstein kind of moving through the decades but the mummy was kind of left behind Mm -hmm. and is it because maybe in the 30s there was perhaps you know a interest in antiquity i guess um that perhaps didn't really translate or is it the fact that the mummy as a character doesn't translate particularly well onto cinema and once you've got some you know dude stumbling around in bandages really slowly it's you know, it's not particularly interesting, which hence why when you see the the kind of the, the resurgence of the mummy in the early two thousands with the the kind of the big budget remakes with like Brendan Fraser and stuff, there's not really any of that, is there? No, I mean it's the same story as the nineteen thirty three version, which is uh, you know the mummy is a character called Imhotep who is revived by people who kind of go digging into the into his tomb and they find a scroll and the scroll revives him and then he goes after a woman who is kind of a uh, revived version of the woman that he was in love with when he was alive in ancient Egypt and in both I think in both he is kind of uh, buried alive essentially you know he is mummified alive and then he comes back to life later on but the terror of the original one lies largely in Karloff's performance as Imhotep because he is physically very imposing which helps you know he's a very large man and he's someone who just has this air of menace to him but he's also very softly spoken so there's a disparity between this man who is seems very cultured but who also has this great power and is a huge threat to everyone around him and that is something that is very hard to replicate i think a lot of subsequent versions of the mummy just make him similar to the frankenstein monster someone who's just kind of a mindless creature who doesn't have a huge amount of agency and Mm -hmm. that has very limited potential as far as horror goes and that's why like with the the stephen summers version the, the the mummy and the mummy returns they took it into action adventure where it actually suits pretty well because you have the opportunity for all this special effects laden stuff uh, that allows you to do big set pieces and that you can say okay this guy's a thousand thousands year old creature that's come back from the dead he needs human souls to kind of replenish himself and he can summon scarabs and kind of sand demons and all this sort of stuff and you can throw in all of this slightly twisted and made up Egyptian mythology into the mix as well. So you can make it more epic than just a bunch of archaeologists trying to stop this one guy from killing people. Mm. And it's kind of worth noting that we're kind of to bookend this entire discussion. The original universal monsters shared universe was a thing. Uh, I didn't know it was a thing until years later when shared universes were a growing concern, but now the universe are trying it again, aren't they? And we've discussed this before, that they're kind of insistence that they're going to make it work, despite the questionable quality of any of the films they've done. Uh, I, is I, Frankenstein, one of them? There was a Dracula Untold. Dracula Untold is part of it. Uh, I, Frankenstein was by a different studio. Oh, was it Victor Frankenstein? Or the one with, the one oh, with um, James McAvoy and, um, and Daniel Radcliffe is the one I'm thinking of. That may be part of it. Yeah, and they're kind of insisting on doing it and it's not really taking... The films aren't, you know, being particularly well-received by audiences or critics or making a good deal of money or anything. But that might all change when the Mummy reboot lands because that's got Tom Cruise in it. It's got Tom Cruise in it and also it's the only one of those properties that has been proven to make money in the last 20-something years. Mm, Like, there have been a bunch of adaptations of dracula um frankenstein as a story hasn't really been adapted much i mean obviously you have victor frankenstein i frankenstein but prior to those it's really just a thing that inspires other kinds of stories like you can look to something like uh like splice the uh mm-hmm. kind of story was it vincenzo natale 
It was the guy who did Cube, yeah. Yeah, where it's about kind of scientists creating life. And that, you know, the Frankenstein archetype, that's that's kind of its biggest influence is it's become a catch-all for any story about people who meddle with God's plan or whatever. <laughs> people who decide to create something either technologically or kind of genetically uh, and then that thing just killing them and just getting completely out of control uh, even something like ex machina from last year i guess would kind of fall under that or Jurassic but, park yes exactly or westworld mm, back in the hot news. topic hot topic yeah. uh, a show neither of us have watched <laughs> <laughs> yeah if, if, if listeners are wondering why we haven't mentioned it um neither of us have seen it and so many people are bugging us to see it now that we're resisting it yeah i might just go back and watch the old movie I would actually quite like to watch the old movie again. That's a really good movie. Uh, but yeah, it's um, so like Frankenstein as a property is something that's more just kind of something, a jumping off point for a lot of people, you know, as a kind of story. So it's not something that really, other than being some a perennial Halloween costume, mm-hmm. topical, uh, apart from being kind of a perennial outfit and an iconic thing that is constantly referenced, is not, it, it, there's like a difference between brand like recognition and like interest like everyone knows what dracula is everyone knows what frankenstein is but that doesn't mean they actually want to see those movies uh whereas the mummy is was a fairly successful trilogy of movies with a spin-off starring the rock and a bunch of direct dvd sequels and a very popular ride at universal so that's something that probably has a lot more kind of cachet so not only does it have a big star in it in tom cruise it's also arguably at this point weirdly considering the character was kind of more or less forgotten compared to some of the other characters in the the monster universal monsters stable it is now kind of the big ticket uh item of the group mm. and it's worth noting that the wolfman has the least cachet i guess mm. because and they tried it a few years ago with Benicio del Toro. But what's worth noting is that the werewolf genre seems to have overtaken and outgrown um, the wolfman as a, as a kind of solitary person. There's been way more interesting stuff done with werewolf films, you know, post-American werewolf in London than the wolfman could ever do. Because ultimately it's just going to be the, you know, the story of some Victorian dude turning into a wolf. Uh, but it's also interesting in that there's kind of a, a line to be drawn between something being influential and something being iconic. Mm-hmm. And like Frankenstein is so iconic that basically anyone who makes a new Frankenstein story is in some way having to push back against it because you can't have the monster look like the Karloff version because that's just too iconic and that's what everyone expects. Whereas there's not really a huge amount iconic about the Wolfman. There's no kind of scenes that you could point to, like in Frankenstein, of the of of the monster playing with the girl by the lake, or when he dies and he's like screaming in terror from all the fire, and it's actually deeply sad. But the the Wolfman and Kurt Siodmak's screenplay more or less invented the modern idea of what a werewolf story was. Like like I said prior to that the idea of a werewolf was that it was you were just cursed to be a werewolf you didn't have to be bitten by another werewolf you could turn into a werewolf at any time it wasn't related to the site to the to the moon uh it was the first film to really do the idea of like a silver bullet and things like that so even though it's one that's not necessarily that iconic or that well remembered by most people it probably did more to shape its genre than either of the other two films which kind of it not only did it kind of provide a template it essentially invented the template for how those kind of stories play out mm. yeah yeah what are your kind of favorite depictions of, of those characters well i think the Karloff frankenstein is the best one um i think he was just so like he's genuinely very soulful even though he's a largely incommunicative <laughs> lunk uh, he does bring a lot of character to to the creature and he is someone who has that mix of on one level just being a creature who's driven by pure instinct and who's just incredibly violent but also is sort of childlike and has the capacity for joy and could be better if he was given the opportunity but he doesn't get the opportunity because he murders a small child and then is burnt alive. 
Mm. Dracula, even though I don't like the film very much, I do think I think the Oldman version might be my favorite depiction of that character because mm-hmm. it's a lot he's a, he's just kind of like fun and very arch. Uh, and even though I don't like the film around it, I do like him. Although actually having said that, I do love the opening 10 15 minutes of Francis Ford Coppola's Bram Stoker's Dracula because mm-hmm. uh it's crazy. <laughs> it has him like as a young man stabbing a cross with a sword and then the cross bleeding uh which is just like an insane thing werewolves i mean it kind of has to be american werewolf in london really doesn't it because mm-hmm. uh, like there's only really two wolf men like there's there's long cheney jr and there's benicio del toro uh mm-hmm. yeah and like the invisible man claude rain's pretty good at that so yeah, yeah i think those would be those ones like the universal ones do have a lot of gravity to them and they have a, a kind of a strong pull so it's kind of hard to really and they're iconic for a reason because they're, they're really good performances mm, i'm gonna go for um chevy chase as invisible mm-hmm. man yep whoever plays mummy in mummy dearest that film mm-hmm. for for that i'm gonna go for i like christopher lee as dracula sure um i'm kind of i've got a, a you know a, a kind of penchant for the for the for the camp mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh yeah he, he kind of does ham it up i like werewolves um i kind of like i like ginger snaps the one we mentioned earlier and yeah um ginger snaps back a superior sequel which uh is very good if anyone hasn't seen that and hey, what was the other one frankenstein yeah um i'll go for um I, there's actually quite a lot to like in the kind of brenner frankenstein yeah um, but just none of it kind of comes together to make a good film. Like there's so many like little touches, like the electric eels in the, you know, in, in the kind of the tank and stuff. And then like the ending with like the, as it is in the book with the ice mm-hmm. is great, but just, and I think John Cleese is in it at the start, like operating on like a monkey and trying to make it come back to life. Um, that's I didn't dream that that happens. Um, <laughs> and there's a lot to like it. You know, the atmosphere is quite thick and like horrible at times, but you know, the actual film's pretty bad. Mm. I don't but know whether yeah. it's because she's kind of like hampered by the Helena Bonham Carter stuff, which doesn't really work, or whether they're just trying to get you know a method actor to play Frankenstein's monster. Probably not the best idea. Yeah, because he did like graft all of those dead body parts onto himself for months. Mm, yeah, well, no, I, I remember when like they were saying, "Oh, you know, how are you bring in the method to this?" And he was like, "Well, you know, I met with like people who have had like, you know, like debilitating kind of injuries to their faces, and I kind of studied how they talk with like half a jaw and stuff." And I'm just like, "Fucking hell, dude, come on!" <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? He was a proto Jared Leto in that regard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, I think like it's weird, isn't it? That like all of these characters have just kind of. Uh, changed and developed through time and they're ultimately being kind of just swamped by zombies in the last <laughs> 20 years because that's all, all people seem to care about. Yeah, zombies, which in some ways are kind of a conglo- uh, uh, an amalgamation of so many of the different aspects of those characters. And mm-hmm. You have the kind of the shambling nature of uh, of Frankenstein's monster. You have the kind of the idea of it being passed from person to person from the Wolfman, but also from vampires. Uh, yeah, no, and the uh, it's just interesting that that one kind of monster, because it seems to, it's kind of reminiscent of a lot of different kinds of monsters. And in a mm-hmm. lot of stories, it's actually associated with monsters because the idea of being like a servant or a zombie is something that shows up in a lot of vampire movies. Um, yeah, I think that's, it, it's kind of a nice uh, medium kind of for, uh, a lot of different people, kind of an, uh, an average monster. Mm, yeah, uh, it's got the kind of decrepit element of the mummy as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, like The Walking Dead came out this week very quickly. Do you care? Nope. No, me neither. That's it, guys, <laughs> for <laughs> monsters um, this week. Let's do some recommended. What have you got? I'm going to recommend a TV show that I've been catching up on over the last couple of days. It's the latest show from Mike Schur, who I think people will know from his work. He wrote for The Office for several years. He co-created Parks and Recreation. He co-created Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So he's someone who is uh, generally associated with good comedy. And he's created a show called The Good Place, which is 
the most high concept show he's done so far, but um, I think has the potential for maybe to be his best or certainly one of the best he's worked on. It's a show that stars Kristen Bell as a woman who one day wakes up to find herself in an office with Ted Danson, who informs her that she's dead and that she has gone to the good place, which is kind of a version of heaven where... Uh, which doesn't correspond to every religion, but they say that like every religion got at least 10% of it right. Uh, and so it kind of, that's, that's kind of their way of getting around why it doesn't conform to any of the usual stereotypes. Uh, and Ted Danson is the architect of this place who says that it's kind of perfectly designed vision of the afterlife for people. Uh, but she very quickly realizes that she's been mistaken for someone else. There's someone who has the same name as her, who is meant to be, in heaven or in the good place uh, instead of her, but she's there. And the show kind of takes that as its jumping off point of her trying to figure out how she got there or to try and figure out how she can earn her place there by being a good person in the afterlife, having been kind of a shitty person while she was alive uh, with the help of a kind of an ethics professor played by William Jackson Harper, who's really funny. And, uh, so the show kind of proceeds from the farcical element of trying to keep a secret, but also has these genuine kind of ethical discussions about what it means to be a good person and how you live ethically in a universe where if you lie or do anything bad, it can start to cause like um, giant prawns to fall from the sky. It's a very ambitious show kind of in its scope and its effects and uh, the best comparison i've heard from and this is from uh, david Bax of the battleship pretension podcast so he, uh, he he deserves all credit for this was describing it as being like a combination between a comedy and lost in that it's very high concept it's about a group of characters all coming together in a place and being uncertain why they're there or and each episode kind of unravels a little bit more the mystery of what the good place actually is so it's really funny but it also has this real narrative drive to it uh and Kristen bell's great she's obviously a really charming performer uh but if you're as i am and i know you are if you're a fan of ted danson it's a great showcase for just how amazing a performer ted danson is because he's really funny and goofy as a being who has only just assumed human form and so is just getting to grips with it like there's one episode where he's super excited about the prospect of wearing suspenders mm. uh and he's just so so joyous at the fact that he gets to try suspenders instead of a belt uh but he can also be really soulful when he starts to think that he's responsible for why things in the good place aren't going 100 percent uh and mm. so far about eight episodes have aired and uh the ensemble are really great and it's really starting to gel together uh and i'm really excited to see where they go with it because it's been great so far but also it's proven very willing to kind of push its premise in way in unexpected ways so and that's obviously something that Shaw did a lot on parks and rec where he would kind of advance plot lines a lot quick more quickly than you would expect or do kind of big character moments that you wouldn't have expected to ever happen uh and but still feel in keeping with what had gone before so uh it's very very exciting so far mm. Oh, check that out. I'm going to um, pick something that I kind of felt like last week. We had a really fun show and it was, you know, it was a good giggle. But then we, we kind of ruined it by recommending two incredibly depressing films. <laughs> um, so I'm going to follow suit this week and I'm going to uh, follow your suit, sorry, of like recommending something kind of uplifting. Uh, I'm going to recommend the Netflix original documentary the uh, Justin Timberlake and the Tennessee Kids, which mm -hmm. is uh, a concert film directed by Jonathan Demme, who knows his way around a concert film, having done um, Stop Making Sense. And what was the Neil Young one called? Was it called Year of... No, Year of the Horse was the Jarmouche one, wasn't it? Yeah, Heart of Gold. Heart of Gold, yeah. So it's, uh, you know, it's uh, Demme is just uh, pretty much filming the last performance of Justin Timberlake's 2020 tour in Las Vegas. And, you know, it's very kind of perfunctory build-up. You meet some of the people behind the the scenes. You meet the kind of the tour managers and uh, the kind of caterers. And then you kind of meet some of the band and the backup dancers. And they get a little bit of the show's building up. And then the show starts. And it's a pretty amazing live show, I have to say. And what kind of struck me about it is that whilst Justin Timberlake seems to, you know, be able to do anything, he is... 
very old-fashioned um, star in a way. He can sing, he can dance, he can act, he can, he can kind of do everything. He's pretty amazing. I kind of love Justin Timberlake. I wish I was him. I wish I was as handsome as him. Um, but what I do forget is because, you know, his music is probably the thing I know the least. And, yeah, he is an absolutely electrifying pop performer. And, you know, that is something that is kind of not really on, in vogue these days. You know, he is, I mean, on vogue on around um, the band. <laughs> they're, 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 they're long gone. But he is kind of weirdly a throwback. Um, which kind of feels like a strange thing to say to someone who is probably in his early 30s, only came to prominence, you know, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, that can't be right. Can he can't have been around 20 years ago? 15 years ago? He was in, like, the Disney Kids Club 20 years ago, and then since the late 90s. So, yeah, he has been around for at least two decades in one form or another. Jesus Christ. He's uh, When you say one form or another, are you implying that he's kind of a werewolf? Uh, no, I think about 10 years ago with Sexy Back, he went Super Saiyan. So, you know, he kind of, he just, it went to another form of of existence. Mm, yeah, it's another plane. But anyway, the, if you're like, uh, you know, feeling like blue, stick it on. It'll pick you up. Uh, don't do what I did and watch that film and then 13th, the film that Ed recommended last week, uh, straight afterwards because that has the opposite effect. And I was <laughs> like super buoyant and like felt great about my... Uh, uh, my life and and you know how everything was going. Now let's bring in my step. Then watch Thirteenth, and then realise that life um, and existence is pretty much just dreadful, um, <laughs> and there are no redeeming features to it. And you know we shall probably just give up. But yeah, there we go. That's my recommendation. Thanks for listening, everyone. And that is your lot on the subject of Universal Monsters and their legacy. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Player FM. If you've really enjoyed the show, then please, why not leave us a little review on any of those platforms. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at SRS underscore podcast, and you can find us on Facebook as well. We'll be back next week with something entirely different. And until then, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. <laughs>